I'm Melinda Stevens. I'm the Dean of Undergraduate Programs, and it's my privilege to introduce the speaker. But before I do that, um, I just want to say um, a couple of words about this event and uh, other events that we, like the event we had last night. Um, we titled these the Geneva Visiting Artist and Lecture Series, and these events are funded um, by uh, Paul H. Gilmore, who endowed a fund for this purpose. And the, the purpose of the fund is to provide the income for visiting artists and lecture series at the college with artists and lecturers of high quality who will make an important educational and cultural impact upon the student body. In particular, um, Iva E. Patterson and Dale H. Gilmore are the named um, uh, the, the folks who are named on this lecture series. So I just wanted to make sure that everybody was aware that this was being funded by that um, source. So it's my uh, privilege now to introduce Dr. David Snoke, who spoke last evening, and so we welcome you back if you uh, were here last night. But David uh, received his undergraduate degree from Cornell and his master's degree and PhD in physics from the University of Illinois uh, at Urbana-Champaign. He worked as a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute for Solid State Physics in Stuttgart, Germany, first as an Alexander von Humboldt Fellow and then as a staff scientist. He became an assistant professor in 1994 in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Pittsburgh, where he has been ever since and um, has been promoted to full professor since that time. In 2007, he received both the Career Award of the U.S. National Science Foundation and the Cottrell Scholar Award of the Research Corporation. He was elected a Fellow of the American Physical Society in 2006 for his pioneering work on the experimental and theoretical understanding of dynamical optical processes and semiconductor systems. Over the years, uh, Dr. Snoke has started two new conference series, has published three scientific books, including a textbook on solid-state physics, uh, he's given numerous review articles. He's written numerous review articles for Nature, Science, Physics Today, and other journals, and has given over 80 invited talks and colloquia at international conferences and universities in over 20 countries. Specifically related to faith-science interactions, he has published articles in the Journal of the American Science Affiliation and a book on science and faith. He currently serves as an elder at the City Reformed Church in Pittsburgh, and is the president of the Christian Scientific Society, which seeks to bring together Christians with scientific training and a high view of the inspiration of scripture. Last night, Dr. Snoke spoke on the topic, Why Did Science Arise in a Christian World? And this morning, he is, his topic is being a Christian in science. If you would join me in welcoming Dr. Snoke. Thanks. It's uh, great to be back. Uh, good to see you all. And um, I'm told many of you are here actually voluntarily, so that's, uh, that's really great. Um, I want to start by uh, um, giving you something I flipped by really quickly last night, which was the website for the scientific uh, society that she just mentioned. Um, and the website address in particular, if I can work this right here. Um, so I encourage you uh, to go there. Uh, and we also have a Facebook site, which you can go. And uh, if you like it, then you get uh, news feed from, uh, from that and so on. And um, 
we can talk about this a little bit more uh, in the Q&A if you want, but um, it's a new society uh, really uh, aimed at bringing Christians together in the sciences. So I encourage you to go there and check out things. There's actually, if you go through the tabs at the top of the website, there's all kinds of uh, hidden resources, articles, videos, uh, links to other organizations and things like that. Um, so I'm going to uh, talk, as uh, the title said, about being a Christian in science. And in many ways, a lot of what I'm going to talk about, I guess there must be a uh, loose cable here. Um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about is not um, really unique to being in a science area, but really just about being a Christian in the secular world in general. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different careers that you could be in where you are a minority, where you are uh, in a uh, culture which has a very different way of looking at the world than you do. And so a lot of what I say will actually apply not specifically just to science, but to our overall interaction uh, with the world. Um, so there's this general question, how do the Bible and science interact? If you were to talk to a number of Christians who are in science, you would get this option, uh, what I call the no interaction model. And um, there's, I have to say, I have a number of colleagues in science. There's quite a few scientists, as I talked about last night, there's quite a few scientists who are Christians. But um, many of them would hold to this view, which is that they keep their science uh, in one world and their religion in another world, and there's essentially no interaction between the two. And lots of fancy names are given for this. Uh, there's uh, the term uh, from uh, Stephen Jay Gould, non-overlapping magisteria. That sounds very majestic, right? Um, that means that they have nothing to do with each other. Uh, complementarity is one that you'll hear. Orthogonality is one that you'll hear. Uh, sometimes people talk about scientism as being the mistake of thinking that science can say something about religion uh, and vice versa. Uh, and um, uh, all of this basically... Uh, presents a view in which they would say, well, science and religion are both important, but they talk about completely separate things, and so we're always making a mistake uh, if we let them talk about the same things. Uh, now, that in many ways, I don't want to disparage anybody's uh, intentions, but it's very convenient. Uh, if I was to take that view, it would be really easy because I would basically say that I just buy into whatever the predominant uh, paradigms are for the scientific world, uh, and I never really question anything. And then I go to church on Sunday, and I have Christian fellowship and Bible study, and none of that is ever threatened by anything that comes up in science. In some sense, it's a great defensive posture, because it says nothing that science could ever do or say could ever threaten my Christianity. Uh, and on the other hand, it makes it somewhat comfortable to say, well... Nothing that I would ever read in the Bible would ever threaten my science, so that means that my career is safe also. I don't have to worry about being viewed as some kind of fundamentalist. Uh, and so, you know, that's a, a convenient way of doing things. The problem is that might work for some religions. It doesn't work very well for Christianity. Um, the, Christian, the Bible has, goes out of its way to talk about things happening in the real world. Uh, it talks about uh, Jesus being born and incarnate in this world. And so, for example, if you read in the book of Genesis about the Garden of Eden, it's not a story where it says in a land far, far away in a time you know, unknown. Uh, it actually goes out of its way, almost a boring detail, to talk about how it happened in a real place in a real time. It talks about, well, this river flowed to this place where you could go and buy gold, and uh, this river goes to this nation. And Adam, you know, he had these children, their genealogy is this, and so on. And so it goes out of its way to connect to real people. Um, so just as an example of this, um, this is uh, a picture from a, um, 
uh, article which was uh, published about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, which I found to be fascinating, which is actually locating the Garden of Eden. And, you know, sometimes I think we think, well, that would be silly to locate the Garden of Eden because it's a mythological story, right? Uh, but it, as I said, it goes out of its way to say, well, there was these various rivers. Well, two of the rivers are really easy. Uh, it talks about the Euphrates and the Tigris, and everybody knows where those are, okay? And then there's two other rivers, uh, one of which is called the Gihon, and another which is called the Pishon, and people have puzzled a little bit over the years as to what those are. Well, um, this article makes a good argument that uh, one of these rivers, uh, the Gihon, is the same as the Charon, which runs up here uh, to the Kassites. And then there's still a question about this fourth river. Well, it turns out with satellite photography in the last 20 years, they've actually identified a fourth river that flows across the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and goes to the land of Havilah where there is gold. Uh, and it turns out that you can only see this river now by satellite photography because it's covered up by sand dunes in a whole bunch of different places. Uh, and it turns out it probably dried up around 3000 BC. Uh, fascinating, right? Um, now, you know, that says that, you know, actual science is talking about the same things as the Bible. We can't put them in completely different categories. Um, now, this will make some people uncomfortable. Uh, it also turns out that these rivers run over top of sedimentary rock, okay? And sedimentary rock, uh, you know, if you're a flood geologist, uh, that would say, you know, something's wrong, right? Because these rivers are on top of uh, sedimentary rock. We'll come back to that maybe. Um, in general, Francis Schaeffer uh, makes this point that the Bible does not come to us just as a set of principles. It's not as a set of rules. It's news about real-world events. It's saying God actually intervened. God actually did this in the real world. And so, in principle, we can't separate those things. And so, um, while it's true to say that the Bible is not a textbook of science, and so it's not merely science, uh, by its very nature of talking about the real world, we can't put it in a completely separate category and say it has nothing to do with science. So, for example, and I know this will relate to many of you here, um, can we study psychology... Uh, as Christians, without any concept of sin coming into our into our thinking, um, you know, if we believe that sin is real, then that's going to have some effect on what we think psychology is about. And if we study it entirely uh, by secular paradigms, we're going to be doing a different type of psychology. And another one which I wrote an article several years ago about is the very fact that Jesus, uh, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, happened in the real world has enormous implications. It says that, well, if somebody was to come up with the bones of Jesus, well, there would be our faith, right? Now, these days, we don't worry about that, right? Okay, what are the odds that somebody is going to do some archaeology? There actually was a claim a couple years ago of someone claiming to have the bones of Jesus that they had found. Uh, it was pretty quickly debunked. But in the first century, it would have been a very definite risk that people would have had to say, all right, well... Um, if someone comes up with a real-world data showing these are the bones of Jesus, that would threaten my faith. And so one of the fundamental questions we have to ask is, do I want a faith that is so protected defensively that nothing could ever overturn it, and so that I turn a blind eye to anything that could possibly contradict it? Or am I willing to say, no, this is really about the real world, and so if the real world uh, comes along and there are fundamental things that are in discord with Christianity, uh, that does actually cause me some doubt uh, that is a risky position to be in, but our faith is that that won't happen, right? Our faith is that, you know, the bones of Jesus won't be found uh, because he really did rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. 
so in general, the Bible doesn't allow us to make such a clean separation. Even though the Bible is not primarily about science, it doesn't allow us to make such a clean separation between uh, science and religion. Uh, they talk to each other uh, in a lot of ways. And fundamentally, because God was incarnate in the flesh, we can't make such a sharp distinction. Um, now, that was all option one. What are other alternatives? Okay, One other alternative is to say, uh, let me pick an interaction in which one side always wins. Okay, And there's two options for this. Okay, Fundamentalism would be to say, I start with my reading of the Bible in the absence of any knowledge of science. I come to conclusions, and then I force science to agree with those conclusions. I'm using these terms uh, somewhat stereotypically here. Uh, but that's a ten- temptation that we might have to say, okay, uh, I basically, my religion always wins, science always loses, and science is forced to conform to that. Um, on the other hand, we could go the opposite route uh, with, again, what I could call stereotypically liberalism to say, I'll take whatever present society says is scientific and force the Bible <clears throat> to agree with those conclusions. Both of these are, in some sense, easy resolutions. Both of them say that I pick a winner and I just force the other one into agreement with that at all times. Okay, so I'm not promoting that either. So what is my uh, paradigm that I'm giving you then? Uh, I'm arguing for an interaction in in which both science and the Bible uh, can sometimes be challenged. Now, when I say Bible interpretation, uh, bear with me. I'm not saying I want to change the Bible. Um, And so my model is uh, something like this to say that science and, and religion are not the same, but there is an overlap area in which they do talk about the same things. And so we can talk about body and spirit. Uh, humans lie in this category, being uh, people who are body and spirit. History uh, has, uh, the Bible presents itself as actual history of real events, including miracles. Uh, and so that lies in this area of overlap as well. And because of that overlap, that means you could, in principle, have conflict. And so I am not advocating a no-conflict model. I'm saying there is the potential for conflict. There's a potential sometimes for confusion. Um, a lot of people told me this diagram here is uh, pretty helpful. Um, there's, if you think about our experience uh, in science, we commonly distinguish between what we call data and theories. Okay, So we have the data and we have theories. Data is what you get in the lab, what you get from a telescope, uh, you know, however you get data. Um, and the scientific uh, approach is that you are never change the data, right? You could go to jail, actually. There was a guy in Japan who committed suicide because of falsification of data. If you mess with the data, uh, you're in big trouble. You're being dishonest. On the other hand, theories change all the time. Uh, they don't change you know, so quickly, but we have rules by which we can change theories. And the idea is to find a better theory that conforms with the data more. Uh, So we're not just changing them willy-nilly, whatever we want, but we're saying, uh, if I have new data that I take into account and my old theory doesn't work for that, I have to alter my theory in order to adjust to fit the new data. Uh, Well, in the same way, uh, in the era of theology, we have a similar type of distinction. Uh, We have the Bible. Uh, And again, uh, honesty for evangelical Christians is you don't mess with the Bible. You don't say, well, I don't like that verse, so let me throw that one out, or let me uh, change the wording of that, or retranslate that, or something like that. On the other hand, uh, theology and and hermeneutics lie in this category where you're saying, well, how do I put that all together? How do I make a big picture to help me understand the Bible in these broad themes? And clearly the church has been wrong. Uh, Clearly I've been wrong, so if you think about an individual... 
you can say, I hope that your theology has grown from the time you were 13 years old and that you've uh, changed maybe some of your thinking about some things. In the same way, it's not too hard to go back and say, well, the church used to teach some things that, that today we would say are just wrong. Uh, <clears throat> you know, go back to the Crusades of the Middle Ages or go back to uh, theology of races uh, or things like that, things that people thought were good organizing principles for understanding the Bible. We would say, well, that's just wrong. Uh, but we're not saying, well, we're chucking the Bible. Uh, we're saying that actually the more we look at the biblical data, the more we take into account biblical data that they were ignoring, in fact, the better our theories get because we alter our theories to be in better conformity with Scripture, not to change the data, but to change the theory to conform better to the data. Uh, well, uh, the, the interesting interaction I'm proposing is not only to say there's an interaction this way, and there's an interaction this way, but there could be interactions this way, diagonal, and there could be interactions that way, okay? To say that sometimes uh, I might have scientific data that looks so darn real, it looks so uh, pretty convincing, that I question, not the Bible, but I question my theories of Bible interpretation. So that scientific data, not just biblical data, can lead me to question whether I need to change some assumptions in my theology. Similarly, I'm arguing this way. I'm saying there may be biblical data that's so darn clear uh, that it makes me question things that the scientific world is saying. Uh, so, for instance, I may say uh, that the Bible's description of Adam and Eve is so clear that even though scientists uh, might say that there was no Adam and Eve, I'm going to question that because I think the Bible's really clear on that one. Uh, and so th there's crosstalk that I'm arguing that uh, basically data on either side can question theory on the other side in either category. Uh, and so that can be an uncomfortable position to be in uh, because I think a lot of times what we would like to be able to do is say, I want to cast my th uh, theology in stone and never question it again. Uh, but sometimes honesty and humility says that as I grow in wisdom that I start to say uh, some of the things that I assumed before turn out not to be true. Uh, so in terms of how this works out in practice, in terms of being a Christian in science or a Christian in the secular world, I would say Christians ought to be the best radicals, so to speak, the best skeptics, uh, the best questioners of, of prevailing paradigms, uh, because we can question both ways. Right? So um, I would say that uh, in science, most of the time, I'm doing science the same way that my non-Christian friends would be doing science. Um, <clears throat> mostly there is a consensus about how to do science. But on occasion, I question some of the things uh, that the prevailing scientists' uh, scientific views are saying, uh, and I get some flack for that. Um, on the other hand, um, it sometimes works the other way. Um, sometimes I question things that uh, prevailing uh, theologies say, uh, and I get in trouble for that also from the church. Uh, and so I get in trouble with everybody. Um, but essentially, again, I find that in my theology, 99% of the time I'm agreeing with orthodox theology. Uh, but there's a couple times when I say, well, there's things that actually I don't think the Bible really says that people assume that it's saying. And I'll come to one of these um, in the end. Hopefully I'll have time to talk about that. Um, so, uh, and in both cases, this idea of changing of growing in wisdom and growing in maturity is the theme that I would, I would present. Um, I think it's, it's somewhat too easy to just say, I'm going to be a challenger and I'm going to just sort of knock down icons without saying, well, let me put something in its place.
So let me um, take about uh, 10 or 15 minutes here to talk about one side of this. So this is questioning paradigms in science. So this one, probably lots of you, it will make happy. And then when I go to the other side, it will make you less happy. Um, but um, uh, where would I question some of the things that secular science says uh, coming from a Christian standpoint? Uh, well, I'm going to argue at least three places uh, where there's been a, quite a lot of people writing and talking about. Um, one is the origin of the universe and what are called the fine-tuning problems. Another is the origin of life, what can be called chicken and egg problems. And another is the origin of mind and what is mind. And these are questions that not just Christians but all kinds of people are uh, talking and asking about. So um, just to hear some book plugs again, here is a few authors. Uh, John Polkinghorne was a, uh, a physics professor at Cambridge who quit to become an Anglican priest. Uh, Frank Tipler uh, wrote a book, this is back in the 80s, uh, actually co-authored with John Barrow on cosmology uh, and on biology, fine-tuning questions. Paul Davies is a Neoplatonist. He's not a Christian uh, and um, also quite interesting. Uh, and so there's been a lot of people writing about this issue of fine-tuning. Now, this next slide uh, hopefully will not scare you here. Um, I'm, I'm going to go over this quickly because if you're an engineer, you'll get it, and if you're not, you just go with it. Um, um, a lot of physicists have puzzled over, you know, numbers that are sort of written into the universe. Uh, like we can say the number three is written into the universe, right? We live in a three-dimensional world, you know, height, uh, length, and depth. Um, pi, you know, the ratio of the diameter of a circle to its circumference. Um, you know, these are numbers that we say are sort of written into the universe. Uh, and they are mostly small, you know, three, they're close to one. On the other hand, there are other numbers written into the universe that are very large. So you could take the ratio of the electric force to the gravity force between two electrons. And if you have taken freshman physics, you can do this calculation. And this is the answer, okay? Somehow that just looks way more special than three or pi, right? Um, and not only that, but if you change this even slightly, uh, then life becomes impossible. The universe blows up in some way or other. Uh, and that's what these books go into great detail talking about. This is what's called the fine-tuning problems. And so there's uh, various approaches to this. Uh, some people would say, well, okay, so it's just a coincidence. Who cares? Uh, but it looks fine-tuned in some sense. Uh, now, um, <clears throat> there's another sort of fine-tuning problem, which is not always appreciated, which is in the Big Bang itself. Now, I just have to say about the Big Bang, many uh, Christians uh, reject the Big Bang theory and they present it as a random explosion. But that is actually not what the Big Bang theory says. The Big Bang theory says that actually the universe was in as nearly perfect a state as we can imagine. That all the atoms, all the uh, energy of the universe was, was organized in a essentially perfect symmetric state. Uh, and then it expanded. So when there was the let there be light moment when the thing expands. Uh, this is not an explosion, which is random, but it's a, like the a nearly perfect ringing of a bell. Uh, and Roger Penrose, one of the guys I quoted, uh, has done calculations uh, and gets numbers of like, you know, 10 to the minus 100th to the minus 100th power or something for the entropy, you know, incredibly close to zero, uh, which are just unbelievably low numbers. Now, in response to this, uh, there has been serious proposals uh, for what's called the many universes view to say, well, okay, these are really, really unlikely numbers that have just come up by themselves by random processes. Uh, what are the odds to have such uh, fine-tuning going on? And so serious people argue 
that there are an infinite number of parallel universes, none of which we can see. Uh, so this is an infinite violation of Occam's razor, if you know what that is, okay? Um, you are uh, proposing an infinite number of unobserved identities, entities, uh, and we just happen to be in, uh, the lucky ones in the, uh, in the one universe uh, that allowed life to exist. Um, you know, when I hear things like this, I say, well, you know, the Christianity's assumptions don't sound so crazy, right? <laughs> um, now, the second area where I would say there's interaction between uh, science and faith is clearly one that's on everybody's minds all the time, which is Darwinian evolution. Um, and um, I will say that natural selection is a real process. Uh, it is something that does happen. Um, but what Darwinian evolution, typically in the secular world, people want to say explains everything. Not just that it explains some things, but it explains all of life. Uh, and there are some fundamental problems with that, and again, I don't have time to talk about that. But just keep in mind, natural selection itself requires life to already exist, to be able to reproduce, and to be able to change when it reproduces, but not too much. Um, if you don't have reproduction happening, natural selection doesn't happen because it works by variation of the offspring of something. If there are no offspring, there's no variation of the offspring. And so uh, a lot of the mechanism is hidden in this reproduction process. How do, how do things reproduce? And there's a lot of hand-waving that goes along with that. And again, for sake of time, I don't have time to uh, go over a lot of details. Um, just to point out some books, um, both by Christians and non-Christians, um, uh, this is from the Discovery Institute. Uh, Stephen Meyer is a Christian. Michael Denton is not. Uh, and so on, a number of people questioning uh, sort of the origin of life issues. And um, for sake of time, I'm just going to show you a, a fun movie. All right. Um, this is what we're talking about. And a lot of times, you know, people talk about this in philosophical terms. But sometimes it's good just to think about what, what are we really talking about here, okay? This is a picture of the DNA... Uh, Replosome. This is what's needed for reproduction. So every time we have one cell divide, all of your DNA has to be copied. Uh, and the way it's copied is you take the two strands, you pull them apart, and then you have little machines that run along the DNA, pulling stuff from the environment to copy it in to make two separate strands. Okay, well, that's a very hand-waving way of saying it, but this is really what it looks like. So this is an actual uh, computer simulation uh, which is done by this Australian group. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully this video will work. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So what you see here is a little arm that pulls out a loop of DNA, takes it off, all right, and then you see the copying machine. One is working in one direction. The other is working in the opposite direction. And in order for it not to run out of DNA, you have to keep pulling out loops. So this one little thing here, and I'll run it one more time, um, that's like a hand pulling out rope from a coil, right? And so this has to run through this process, and there's so much more I could talk about with this. This whole thing has to work error-free nearly perfectly uh, every time a cell divides in order to have any kind of reproduction before natural selection can even work, right? Uh, and so this whole thing is composed of hundreds of atoms. Each one of these is made of hundreds of atoms uh, that work in a very special way. And I'll show you one more movie. These movies are all available on the Christian Scientific website, by the way. This is the uh, energy source for the cell. Uh, to have energy, you have to have an engine, right? And so this is what it looks like. And again, this is a real, this is not just an artist's uh, conception. This is a real numerical simulation, okay? Uh, and this is an engine with a bunch of parts, uh, with a rotor, 
Uh, and this is going on inside every one of our cells, okay? This is taking, uh, as you can see here, protons. It's a proton pump. Uh, and so it works in two different ways. If you have a uh, proton gradient, you can use it to make uh, the uh, ATP chemical, which is used by the cell, or you can run it backwards and burn any ATP in order to spin this rotor and pump uh, atoms in the opposite direction. So that's another good engineering principle, right? A, uh, you can use a motor as a generator or a generator as a motor uh, by running them backwards. And so this has to work before there's any energy in the cell to do anything with, all right? And again, we have this intricate thing here, and you saw how the ATP cell uh, um, uh, molecule fits perfectly in the little slot uh, that's created there by those. Um, so how do people understand this? Well, again, there's a lot of hand-waving that goes on. There's people who talk about scaffold theory. Well, this process had to be built by some prior system that evolved, and so all of the stuff we see now is actually not evolving but was produced by some earlier thing that did evolve. Uh, that's what's called the scaffolding theory. And then after that whole structure created the life that we see now, it fell away and was uh, eliminated. And so that's another unobserved entity. You're basically saying there's a whole extra story of evolution that happened before our present story uh, called the scaffold. Now, when I saw th this theory actually is also seriously promoted. Uh, someone like Richard Dawkins will actually be open to this. I've actually, when I, back in the 90s, I was sort of uh, being a uh, grad student, postdoc, when I saw this in, in um, uh, Scientific American, that people seriously promote that life came because aliens brought it down from outer space, I thought, okay, I'm done being hiding my Christianity. <laughs> I mean, if this is what the best they're coming up with is, I am not going to worry about being mocked for my views. Uh, uh, because, you know, uh, and if you've ever seen that movie Expelled, there's a wonderful interview between Ben Stein and, and Richard Dawkins where Richard Dawkins is saying, no, I think it's possible that aliens brought life down from outer space. And Ben Stein's like, you think that aliens brought life down from outer space? Okay. <laughs> you know, it's just, um, but this is a serious view. And we also have uh, serious people talking about the Gaia goddess theory, that there is a goddess of the earth that created life here. Um, and uh, all of these are basically hand-waving ways of saying we don't know how we got the first uh, life. And so... Uh, it, the first life is already amazingly intricate before you ever have anything like natural selection kicking in. Uh, and again, I feel like I'm just doing a rapid survey of all these issues here. Um, I won't even go into any of the details with this, but just to say this is another one. And here, uh, this book is really dense, uh, very hard to read. This one is not, and I really recommend this one by Walker Percy called Lost in the Cosmos. Um, the fact that... Um, the secular world would say in a hand-waving way, well, our minds are just brains. But that is far from proven. That is an assumption that many people make. Uh, and there's a lot about the mind that we don't know. Um, Roger Penrose, again, he's a real uh, thinker out there. Um, he has uh, argued, actually, that you can prove on mathematics that our thinking cannot be like that of a computer, uh, cannot be algorithmic. And uh, this goes back to something called Gödel's theorem, which uh, if you're a philosopher, you might know about. Or mathematician. Okay, so um, that's all. Uh, and again, you know, you get into crazy stuff in terms of mind. People talk about quantum mechanics and how you can understand the mind of quantum mechanics. And uh, that's something I actually know something about. And I think they're just nuts. Um, uh, now, in all of this, what I've been pointing out is things where there's just 
huge, vast things that are, are the elephant in the room, things that cannot be understood and uh, by, without bringing God into the picture. And there's a number of people, including many Christians in science, who would say, I ought not to do that, that I've made a category mistake by allowing religion to talk to science, uh, that if I question any of these paradigms, that I'm doing something fundamentally wrong because I'm bringing my faith into the science sphere. Uh, and the problem, they would say, is, well, what if science actually does explain those, then where would you be, right? Uh, and so, again, it's a defensive posture to say, well, we need to fear that science will explain all these things, and so we have to have a faith that can be protected uh, no matter what science explains. It's essentially a hunkering down. Um, well, I would actually present a, a little bit of a different picture. I would say it looks more like this. Uh, in fact, we've got some decent pictures of things where we'd say, okay, uh, we can understand the evolution of stars uh, once we've got stars uh, that they uh, evolve in time. We can understand uh, evolution of some species that they adapt to different environments and so on. But actually, the so-called gaps are huge, right? So in the secular model, you've got, okay, we understand this, but on the other hand, we don't understand this infinite number of infinite universes, all of which are unobserved. That's a pretty big gap, okay? Um, then we've got, before, between there and there, we've got this entire huge unobserved chemical evolution process that leads to the origin of life that nobody knows anything about. That's a pretty huge gap. Uh, and then we've got this stage here where a completely missing causal ex explanation for how we have minds that understand consciousness and truth and morality. How does that come out of just atoms and molecules? Um, these are not just gaps, but these are actually some of the most important questions in life. Uh, and uh, I mentioned this one guy, um, uh, Thomas Nagel. Uh, where's that book I mentioned here? Um, this book is a, a very dense book to read, but he is a, um, a Jewish atheist scholar from New York University. Uh, and he makes the point, you know, if you want a complete worldview uh, and you can't answer these questions, it's not a very complete worldview. Uh, you know, if you're saying that, well, we understand everything uh, except for, you know, why there is anything, why there is life, and why uh, people with minds exist. That's like saying we really don't understand most of it, you know. And so there's this picture that I talked last night about enlightenment thinking. There's this picture that people want to have of saying, well, science has nearly understood everything, and we just have a few tiny little gaps left. But actually, the picture is more like saying, well, we understand a few little things, and actually all the main questions of life that people really worry about are totally unexplained. Uh, and so Nagel argues it's an incomplete worldview. Now, he does not propose Christianity. He proposes some kind of uh, uh, Platonic view instead. Uh, but he's clearly saying you know, there's a problem with the existing paradigm. Okay, um, I have to uh, address this uh, just really quickly here. Um, in general, I would say I believe in the possibility of miracles uh, as a scientist. Um, and so I would say the, the resurrection of Christ and the ascension are miracles. Uh, the incarnation of, of Christ is a miracle. Uh, I'm okay with saying there are miracles in the creation story as well, like the creation of Adam and Eve and so on. Um, that bothers a lot of people in science, including Christians in science, because they worry, they say, well, if you allow for miracles, doesn't that kill science? Don't you then have, you just every day, if something doesn't work out in the experiment, you go, oh, it's a miracle. Uh, you know, uh, my lab didn't work today. It must be a miracle. Um, 
Well, that's not the way Scripture talks. Scripture doesn't say, well, miracles just happen randomly all over the place for no reason, right? Miracles happen for a definite reason when God is proclaiming his glory and is saying, uh, I'm confirming this apostle or this prophet. Uh, They're not just random events that happen for no reason. And the analogy that I like to give is that of a master computer programmer. Um, Some of you, I'm sure, uh, do computer programming. Imagine that you meet somebody... Uh, and he says, you know, um, I actually was one of the people who wrote the Windows operating system. Uh, I actually uh, am one of the five people who, you know, wrote the whole system. And you say, well, how do I know whether to believe you? I mean, that sounds like a pretty grand claim. I don't know whether I should believe you. Uh, and uh, he says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll change it, uh, and I'll make it do something different from what it normally does. And, uh, and he sits down at the keyboard. He types a few things, and lo and behold the Windows operating system does something completely different. Uh, And then uh, he puts it back to the way it was, and he fixes it again, right? Because that's also just as impressive, right? If you you change it, if somebody says, well, I can can work on your car engine, I can take it all apart, (laughs) but I can't put it back together, that's not so impressive. Uh, But if somebody says, I can take it all apart and put it back together again, then you say that's impressive. In a lot of ways, that's what's going on with miracles, is that you have someone saying, I'm... I'm speaking for the uh, writer of the operating system, uh, and I'm going to prove it by changing the operating system for a short period of time, and then I'll put it back the way it was. Now, if the operating system was always chaotic and never working very well, and here's where the analogy is, Windows kind of breaks down a lot too, but um, if if the system wasn't working well, you wouldn't know whether someone had changed it or not, right? You wouldn't be able to say, well, look, this thing is so random. I can't tell whether you've changed or not because it changes itself randomly anyway. And so how would I know? Uh, but actually, the regularity is just as important as the ability to change it. So the fact that Windows mostly does work and mostly does work well, uh, that's impressive then when someone says that they can change it. If it was just always breaking down all the time, I wouldn't be impressed. And so God is glorified both in what theological terms is called general revelation as well as special revelation, both in the regular things uh, that work well as well as when he enters in and changes things and does things uh, that are different from the normal rules. Uh, And so in science, that means that I don't instantly jump to an explanation of miracle. Uh, I generally assume that God works according to normal means, Uh, but I, I leave open the possibility for miracle so, for instance, if I was there at the feeding of the 5,000 and I said, okay, I weighed the bread beforehand, I weighed the bread afterwards, and there's a discontinuity, and I see I've got 100 times more bread after than before, and there's no way by conservation of mass to do this by normal physics laws, then I would say, that sounds like a good candidate for a discontinuity for uh, some monkeying with the system. Uh, and so I would say we can apply the same approach to other places as well. Okay, well, I'll finish with that. I told you I was going to question paradigms the other way, okay? Um, what about paradigms of theology? This is a book uh, that I published uh, a few years ago, Biblical Case for an Old Earth. Um, so I hope I just convinced you I'm not a rabid evolutionist, right? Um, but I do believe the earth is old, that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, and I don't think that that contradicts the Bible. And so what I want to take in these just last couple minutes is not to give you that whole argument. You have to read the book for that, um, you need to buy the book, right? I get a dollar for every book that gets sold. Um, but actually, I want to just give you an overall approach. Um, and the, the, the overarching thing that I would say is there's a difference between literalism and faithful interpretation, okay? Um, 
Oftentimes, when we're young Christians, we think that the most honest thing uh, in interpreting the Bible is to say, whatever I thought first when I read it the first time, that's the most honest interpretation, and if I change that, then I'm being dishonest. And that often can be the case, right? Because I might say, well, I don't like what it says, so I'm going to change it because I don't like that. And that would be dishonest. Um, But sometimes we change our interpretation for good reasons. Uh, Sometimes I might see a larger context. I might see the rest of Scripture that says, oh, I read this a totally wrong way. Uh, And actually, rest of Scripture really gives me a better context for understanding that. Sometimes I get to know the Hebrew culture better, and I say, oh, you know, they didn't know anything about toasters or something, and so if I thought of it that way, then I'm thinking about it wrongly, uh, and so I need to understand the culture. Uh, And uh, again, sometimes just a good theological study of putting things together and uh, doing sort of theory of interpretation helps me to come to better understanding. Essentially, what I'm arguing is that in addition to sort of these internal type things, that sometimes... Uh, new scientific data can, at, can force me to go back and say, have I been making unwarranted assumptions about what Scripture says? And in order to change my interpretation of Scripture, I basically would have to argue I've missed something in Scripture that I otherwise wasn't paying attention to. So in the area of Genesis 1, uh, here's some things that it does teach pretty clearly. All right? It teaches that God created everything and that there's a start to time, that the universe is not eternal. That turns out to be a highly controversial scientific statement. A lot of scientists did not want to believe that, and Hugh Ross has written about that as a science, uh, Christian in science. It says that things are balanced and not out of control, uh, that God created things that are good. Uh, interestingly, it's, and I'll come to this again in a minute, uh, it says that scary beings such as the Leviathan are just creatures are not in charge. That's an ex- extremely important point because in Babylonian creation stories, these creatures like the Leviathans were the agents of creation. They're the ones fighting each other. And so they'd say, well, when the Leviathans were fighting each other, they kicked up the dirt, uh, and that caused the mountains to form. And then they gouged out the dirt, and that made the seas and so on. And I have a friend, uh, Bill Gould, who calls it uh, uh, young earth evolutionism, <laughs> that the Babylonian stories were stories of uh, chaotic uh, creation uh, with uh, random processes happening, but in a very short period of time. Uh, it talks about humans being unique and having a special role, uh, and it talks about creation being untamed. It talks about people going out to subdue and to conquer the earth. Now, one of the things that many people read into chapter 1, I think, is this idea, and this is what I spent a lot of time in the book talking about, is the assumption that no animals died before Adam and Eve sinned, that, that animals had eternal life, that, that all things that animal, uh, had eternal life, and for all we know, maybe plants and bacteria did as well. Is that something that Scripture teaches? Um, and again, this is really just sort of a broad brush overview, and I encourage you to read the book. Um, I'm arguing now from a biblical standpoint, not from a scientific one, uh, that there's no reason to say that animals had eternal life. Um, A number of different uh, arguments for that. One is, uh, this creature is right there in Genesis 1, the great sea creature, and if you do a word study, as I do in the book, on this great sea creature, it is everywhere carnivorous. It is everywhere scary with big teeth. Uh, And it's especially important, if you remember, the Babylonians used that creature as sort of a, the dark creature of, of, of uh, the pagan world that created the world. And so Moses was very likely writing specifically to say, it's not like the Babylonians say. 
Uh, and so the Leviathan appears as a sort of a minor character in Genesis 1, uh, not as the main character. To say, oh yeah, by the way, God created the Leviathans too that you Babylonians think are so important. Um, in Genesis 3, um, when there is the curse story, talking about the, um, the cursing of creation, um, again, if we don't read into that theologically, uh, what that story says is that um, uh, there will be more thistles and work will be harder. It doesn't say all the carnivorous animals were created at that point. That's a, a, an interpretation that people put onto that. But it doesn't say. If you look at the verse and you take it at face value, it says there will be more weeds and your work will be harder, period. Uh, and so um, there's enormous amounts of theology people read into that story to say, well, it also means there was an entirely new creation. All tapeworms, all sharks, all lions were created at that point. It was a new creation story. But everything in the rest of Scripture points to Genesis 1 as the creation story, not Genesis 3. Uh, and so all these stories of Job, uh, Psalm 104, and so on, that celebrate the creation, celebrate carnivorous animals, and they're referring to Genesis 1 uh, when they're talking about that. Uh, Adam talks about uh, subduing, uh, sorry, Adam is told to subdue the world, to defend it. If you look at the Hebrew terms here, they actually imply struggle. They imply conquest, uh, not just a idyllic view. Uh, and the tree of life also was not given to the animals as far as we know. It was in the garden where Adam and Eve lived. Um, now, the overarching assumption that I think goes into why uh, people struggle with this is because we have this idea that God is only the God of nice things. That God is the God, God would only make fluffy bunnies. He would never make dinosaurs. Uh, and so that actually comes out of the 1800s of Victorian Christianity or, or garden party Christianity, where you know God, uh, you know, and, and Christ incarnate would would be a very polite person you would invite to a Victorian garden party. Uh, he wouldn't be somebody who would uh, create dinosaurs uh, and have wrath and things like that. Uh, and so, a lot of our lack of comfort with uh, with these kind of statements and our idea that if God proclaimed the world was good, there could not have been any dinosaurs in it really fundamentally comes from a more deep assumption about God himself, to say that God is only the God of niceness, and God is not a God who would make violent uh, dinosaurs and carnivorous animals and volcanoes and earthquakes and things like that. And so actually, these kind of presuppositions come in at a very deep level in terms of addressing this question. And interestingly, that was the Christianity that Darwin himself grew up with. Darwin grew up with a Christian, and his life... He, he, he came to a crisis of faith looking at a wasp that ate another type of insect. Uh, and it's, a, it's kind of a disgusting story of how this wasp plants its eggs inside of a caterpillar and then they eat the caterpillar from the inside out. And his basic view is the nice God that I've learned in, in Victorian garden parties would never make such a caterpillar. Uh, and so therefore, there can be no God. Uh, and so other people have taken the view well, God didn't create those caterpillars. Uh, somebody else did, or they came along as a result of the curse. So I'm going to finish with this. Um, so here's my overarching picture. Um, being a Christian in science can be much more than just going along with secular science and going to church on Sunday. Uh, be a paradigm questioner. Question both ways. Question scientific assumptions on the basis of biblical thinking. Question unwarranted theological assumptions uh, if you have good reason to do that as well. And so it's not necessarily the most comfortable position to be in to say, I'm going to question paradigms uh, where people are making unwarranted assumptions wherever I see them. 
but I would say it's better than sort of making too neat resolutions to say, oh, science and Christianity have nothing to do with each other, so it's easy. It's not easy. I would say actually it's really actually kind of fun to wrestle with these areas uh, where they do talk about the same things. So I'll finish with that. Thanks a lot.